0: I tell everybody it's time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. Always leave with your gifts and don't let your age, your friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. My interviews that I bring on Money Making Conversation will provide you, being a consumer or a business owner, access to celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and what I like to call industry decision makers. My next guest is Yusuf Salam. He's an inspirational speaker and prison prison abolitionist, who at age 15 was one of the five teenage boys wrongfully convicted and sentenced to prison in the Central Park Jogger case. In 1997, he left prison as an adult to a world he didn't fully recognize, understood, or understand. In 2002, the sentence for the Central Park five was overturned and all five were exonerated for the crime they did not commit he's on the show to talk about his new book better not bitter living on purpose in the pursuit of racial justice it is the first time that one of the new exonerated or the now exonerated five is telling their individual story in his own words. Yusuf writes his narrative growing up black in central Harlem and in the 80s, being raised by a strong, fierce mother and grandmother, his years of incarceration, his re-entry into the world, and, of course, exoneration. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation. I'm going to call him correctly like his grandmother called him, Master Yusuf Salam. How you doing, sir?
1: It's a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. This is a great moment, great opportunity to really talk truth to power and utilize story for what it's really for, right, to shine light in the darkness and work.
0: Absolutely, and uh, and I we were talking off air, but let's bring everything on air. Like I, I, moved to New York. I was living in New York between 1988 and 1990. I went up there to pursue my comedy career. Felt I was going to be the next Eddie Murphy, you know, Richard Pryor. He was the legend. I knew I couldn't be the next Ed, Richard Pryor, but Eddie Murphy, I thought I could get to him, and I would. So I lived that life, you know. And I, if you was in downtown Manhattan, you could not catch a cab. They would not stop. And give you a cab if you were trying to go to Harlem. It was just ridiculous how blacks were being treated at that time and being uh, second-class citizens. And and and, the, and so I was there, living in the city. I was living at eighty-six and first, which is Yorktown, right there. So I was living in a little—you can call it a one-bedroom. You said, but it wasn't no one bedroom. It was a room. It was a room, brother. It was a room, but it cost like eight hundred dollars a month. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, well, I shouldn't say that. Not in the rest of the country, uh-huh. right? There are examples of what one bedrooms are are really one bedroom. Right. This was. I know exactly what you mean when you say <laughs> a room. But New York City. You know, I'm living in Atlanta now, and any like if you look at my house, my house in New York would be over a million dollars. I didn't pay over five hundred thousand for my house down in Atlanta,
0: uh-huh. and it's a mansion. Absolutely. Well, I live in Atlanta, so we have to connect. So I didn't know you was down in Atlanta. I definitely got to connect, bring you by my office and sit down because I read the book, man, uh, Better Not Bitter. And based on what happened to you at such a young age, one would think this would be a book about anger, about hate, a book about uh, how I've been done wrong. It's a book about motivation, a book about... A slice of life, telling your story, the people who were important in your life, people who were important in your life when you was incarcerated, but also it's a celebration of overcoming the odds. Talk
1: to us. Absolutely. You know what I what I really want to expose in Better Not Bitter, my memoir, is I want folks to know that when you fall in life, and it's not a matter of if you fall, because my good friend Les Brown always reminded me, it's about when you fall. Try to land on your back. And landing on your back is about trying to find the good, trying to find the blessings in everything, right? Looking at the experience and not necessarily saying to yourself, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. But looking at the experience and understanding that God is making sure that you become a survivor, right? And so I looked at my story and I heard the words of Dr. Maya Angelou. And Maya Angelou, you know, Dr. Maya Angelou said something so powerful. She said, you should be angry, but you must not be bitter." She said, bitterness is like a cancer. It eats upon the host. It doesn't do anything to the object of its displeasure. Then she teaches us the alchemy. She says, use that anger. You dance it. You march it. You vote it. You do everything about it, she said. Then she said, you talk it. Never stop talking. I found that Black men rarely get the opportunity to really talk about the experiences that are plaguing us, especially in America. But when you get that opportunity, it becomes so transformative. It's therapeutic. It's it's a it's a beautiful thing when you can talk about these experiences, get them off your chest. And then when you can look at it from a different angle, you get the opportunity to see the hand of God mm-hmm. in the midst. Well, you know, the, the important the
0: important, the important part of the, this conversation that we are having is your faith. Because oh. it drove you to a point uh, to a, a, a sense of security a safe zone and and, and being thrown into an environment that you knew you were innocent. um, You knew it would change. Even when you got out, it would change the way your perception of opportunity in life. At what point did it start to come together that, Hey man, this is my life. And you started building this support system in the prison because you had a support system outside. Your sister, your mom, your grandmother, that was strong. But inside, you also had to build a support
1: system. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the beautiful thing about being insulated in the fire, right? And I call it that, I say it that way because, you know, I feel like the system created this this condition. Right. And in the condition they created, they said, we're going to put him in the fire. This situation that we're going to put the five of them in is going to be so terrible so difficult, they will never be able to escape. And if they they happen to miraculously survive, they will never be able to be successful in life. And the beautiful thing, like I said, is that being in that fire. I remember reading a poem and the poem said, prison life in many ways can be likened to the womb. If the life inside becomes still, the womb becomes the tomb. And so this, this idea that you do not want to die physically, mentally, or spiritually, in the womb of America, right? Right. Many people go in and they physically die in that womb. They come out alive, but they avoid any life. And I think that when I looked at my situation, I said, man, well, what can I do? How can I talk to people to let them know that I'm innocent? And what I found out is that me telling people that I'm innocent, the officers said to themselves, this guy is not supposed to be here. I mean, the officers, the inmates, of course, as well, But that power of being able to have them see me for the first time, as opposed to seeing what the system wanted to be, wanted to define me as, they said, no, this guy is not who the system is saying he is. Right. This this guy is different, you know? And it it really allowed us to become modern day Meshach, Shadrach, and Abinibo, you know? And I think that that's one of the powers of story um, that I'm telling in this particular book and, and utilizing what I understand about what happened to me.
0: Well, you know, one thing you did lose going to prison was your sense of style, you know, your sense of, uh, you know, the shoes, you know, the tie, the suit, you know what I'm saying? You am look at you even smiling, at not, because you know you know what I'm talking about coming on my show, no tie on. Every every picture I see this brother in. He wearing shoes I wear. You know, I was so mad. look at this book, I said, woo, look at them two tones right there, them two tones right there. Every picture he take with the exonerated five, he the only one got a suit on. If he's he sees the class he's the epitome of excellence he articulates he got his degree while i was in college took advantage of the system so let's talk about this style that you uh that you uh that you uh that resonates your
1: personality why is that well, important yeah so i think i think it's important because you know it has nothing to do with um what other people see mm-hmm. right it has everything to do with what you see when you look at yourself in the mirror. Right. People say all the time, wow, you clean up nights. Nice. And I'm not talking about me, but I'm talking about any one of us who chooses to. Refine ourselves. Right. We put a suit on, we put a tie on, um, we, we, we clean our hair up, we clean our face up. You know, whatever it is that we do, we look at ourselves. First of all, we other people look at us and say, wow, you clean up nice." But what happens is the most powerful thing when you look in the mirror at your own self. I often think about my circumstances and say to myself, Thank God I don't look like what I've been. Right. Most people look at me and they say, No, this guy had, he could have never gone to prison. He doesn't sound like a person who went to prison. He doesn't look like or act like nothing about him says prison. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's the beauty of God. God has allowed me to be a shining example of what could be possible for all of us, right? We can reject, literally throw back the definition of life that they want to give us and know that we were born on purpose and with a purpose as opposed to being relegated to the modern day cotton fields of America, right? That's what they want for us to believe. So so many, many of the stories that I've heard have been stories where people have said, no, we are supposed to be dead or in jail before we reach the age of 21. And many of us play into that false narrative. And I'm going to say false narrative again because it absolutely is. When you think about the grand miraculous thing that happens to all of us, our mothers and fathers get together. We become one of over 400 million options racing to the edge. And we are chosen to meet. Look at the odds. That means that we are born on purpose. And if we're born on purpose, we have a purpose. And so the psychosocial reality of being able to really understand that. The system the system may tell you you're not worth nothing. Right. And if you believe it, if you believe it you're going to move throughout your life like you're a mistake. But once you believe that you're worth everything, once you believe that you are the future mover and should of tomorrow, you will begin to move throughout your life with a different type of purpose. And that's what this book is all about. It's about me understanding what happened to me. Me understanding that I had to remember what my mother told me the very last instruction she gave, she said, they need you to participate in whatever it is that they're trying to do, mm-hmm. not participate, refuse. And so how does that show up? It shows up by you refusing to accept the box that they want to put you in. right You refusing to be that, I forget the name of the uh the study that they've done, but there's a study where they put a net in a, in a, a container and the gnat only jumps so high, but the net can jump 10 times higher than that. Mm-hmm. That believes only that it can jump that high. Mm-hmm. And the net teaches the children of the net that can only jump that high. Imagine if we teach people that we can, uh, I mean, we, we see this in sports, right? We right. see Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant, a LeBron James, any of the great shack, right? We see them doing sacred geometry on the court. It looks magnificent, but when we when we understand what we're looking at, we know that that is us as a people. Mm-hmm. That's what it is.
0: Wow. You know, when I'm, I'm talking to Yusef Salam, Master Yusef Salam, uh, your mo- your grandmother would, a- would always say that to you. And you says, in your chapter, you talk about a name is important. My name is Rashawn McDonald. I thoroughly believe that if my name was Ricky McDonald, I would be a different person. My name's Rashawn. I've always been treated different. I've always been noted. You know, people can't spell it, so they have to, I have to correct them, or if they learn how to spell it, they re- respect me or understand my brand. Talk about the... Why your grandmother, uh, who passed away, I think 2014, correct? And uh, why was Master important to her in front of your name? I think what
1: she was doing, which was so important and really so impactful, was that she needed, for one thing she needed to do was to make sure that the people who were holding me captive needed to know who they had. I always got my mail, and I'm saying that because for those who don't know, when you write to a person in prison, that letter is fondled, is read mm-hmm. by the prison officials before it gets to the person that it's supposed to get to. Right. I always got my mail. So imagine the officer getting the mail and saying, this is to master Yusef Salah. Reason sends it off. The content of the letter is what is important. Over and above the title it's addressed to. Because the title is telling me to straighten my back. The title is telling me to remember, not just remember who I am, but remember in a Sankofa kind of moment, sacred memory. Who you are is attached to the people you come from, even though Dr. James Baldwin said to be African-American is to be African without memory and American without privilege. And so we experience this, right? Many of us know we're not supposed to be under these kinds of conditions. But imagine when when you are told that by one of your elders who knows the truth. Right. He's sending you messages. She's sending you seeds. She's allowing those seeds to blossom and bloom in this dark space called the womb of America so that you can metamorphosize into the butterfly that you need to be. And it's so important because if if somebody calls you out of your name, Usually you get upset until you begin to accept it. Right. And so have a Kunta Kinte, knowing that he's a prince, knowing who he is and whose he is and where he comes from, being told, no, your name is now told. He fights tooth and nail until miraculously we see something and we don't see it until later. He buries the truth inside of self, even though he accepts outwardly what they are saying. But inwardly, he never accepts that his name is told. He knows who he is. He knows he's a prince. He knows that his people are looking for him. He was kidnapped, just like people get kidnapped in America. Now, mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. as part of the great transatlantic slave trade. Many of us have, unfortunately, had that reality heaped upon us, and so we don't know where we came from. We don't know who we are. We actually begin to hate ourselves and everything we have been told about us. Because what? As we look out of the window of life, we see others looking in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Everything advertised with white skin. Everything is talked about through white skin. Right. And so we look at dark skin and we say we must be cursed. We don't get the opportunity to understand that the absolute antithesis is the truth. That we are not cursed, but we are blessed and highly favored. How do we know that? Because as we are born out of our mother's womb, we are automatically Born on the right side of everything because they look at us and judge us by the color of our skin, not the content of our cap.
0: There you go. You're absolutely correct. You know, when you in the book, you were talking about you were 16 years old. You were standing in the hallway and they said that they have a verdict. And you went back into the courtroom and um, it was announced guilty. And they sent you to Rikers. And why is Rikers such a horrible prison? Let me ask you that question first.
1: You know, Rikers is, there's so many facets, I think, that makes Rikers one of the most horrible places on earth. But I think part of it is because you have the proximity of people being able to go right to or talk right to or be connected right to the people who they once were. When we come home from prison, one of the most transformative things a person can do is to leave the communities that they came from, right. and I'm not saying that because I want you to to, to to take away your your um your 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 value, right? If you you know, like a lot of, of people in the in the entertainment industry, they happen to leave because they know that they have to insulate themselves, right? Why do they have to insulate themselves? Because America has created poverty and pushed it upon the people in the margins of life. And the people in the margins of life are now responding in a way where we call it the struggle or the survival mentality. What happens when you struggle? What happens when you have to survive, and that's the only thing that you can do? You do anything. And so, in prison, a place like Rikers Island, Rikers Island is a place where people sometimes have not yet been convicted of the crimes that they have so-called committed. And I say so-called because we find out that there's so many people. You look at the college brothers of the world who are not supposed to be there, right? Right, And then you have other people who are actually criminals who have gotten caught, but they are still doing criminal things. They are running the jails. Everybody has this false narrative when they see people who show photos of the prisons that they're in and they look strong and buff and they pose and, and everything like that. And I'll never forget hearing a conversation that Ross Baraka had put on one of his uh, albums and he said nobody talks about the grown men crying. At me. mm-hmm. I was in, I was in Clinton with Tupac. Mm-hmm. I was in Danamara with Tupac, and I remember hearing him say on the gate. And that's something that people in the officers say to the inmates. He said, "Yo, on the gate," and everybody got on the gate. And he said, "Listen, man, I'm just trying to do my bit, just like y'all." Everybody was sending him pieces of the magazines that they would rip out and send to him and say, "Hey, can you sign this?" sign this to my family, my daughter, my friends. I just want to let them know that I'm in here with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at prison, prison has a way of turning people into criminals, even if, you were not criminal. mm. right? mm-hmm. even if you're not a criminal. Right? Why do I say that? I say that because it is the absolute worst place that you can go. Once you've gone there, you've gone. You mm. know that that's the worst that can happen outside of death. And wow. so when you're in a struggle, Right? You have to understand that in the struggle, the struggle is not about a physicality, it's not about war in terms of fighting, in terms of beating someone. Right. War, its greatest tool is the mental to get you to accept defeat. We know the thing
0: about it is that I had a younger brother, he went to prison and I, and I went to visit him in prison. And, uh, you know, like you said, you know, I was in, I was in tears watching him and he was saying, I can't cry. I got to stay hard. And um, that false narrative. And then he said he had to connect with some certain people in the prison so he can stay safe. He had to get into a, a click or a run so he can be able to have somebody have his back. And then you talk about, as you said, when your time becomes short, people can do things to make your time extend, or attempt to kill you. So there's a mindset that operates in prison. I'm just taking knowledge from your book. Your book is amazing. And the book is called Better Not Bitter, Living on the Purpose, Living on the Purpose in the Pursuit of Racial Justice. And the story you take away, I'm looking at a a humble man, looking at an educated man, and you're right. You don't fit the example of somebody who's been wronged, who's been in prison, and then actually taking away some really key developmental years. You know, 15 to 18 is when you really start learning about responsibility, learning about being a man, learning about trying to go to college, learning about trying to, trying to if I'm going to have a wife in my life, you was in jail during that period. And so what allowed you to be able to, I know your, your, your faith, I know your, the Muslim community was there for you, your, your, your parents were there, but you had to be there for yourself. How did you, as a mature
1: young man, be there for yourself? So I think think a lot of that was when you asked me about the name, right? What do you respond to? Mm -hmm. I I, I was told this, but I didn't yet really truly know this. And what I mean by it is that I was told that in the community where I came from, my parents had to observe me for seven days. Right. They knew, just like African communities know, that the, the child that is born is actually a gift from the creator. But in the Islamic community, what happens is that you have to Observe the child to figure out who this is so that you can name it. You don't want to name it Hennessy. And I'm not saying anything bad about anyone who names their child Hennessy, but I want you to understand that when you give a person a name, a person a name, that defines who they are. And so my parents named me Yusuf. I never knew what Yusuf meant. My middle name is Idris, my other middle name is Father, and my last name is Salah. Mm -hmm. oftentimes people would say, hey, what's your name? And I would say, Yusuf Salah. Sometimes they would call me Joseph. And I got upset. Because Joseph will not sound nothing like Yusuf, not to me. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't until I got to prison and I found out in the Bible there was a young man named Yusuf in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I found out in the Quran, there's a young man named Joseph in the Quran. And I'm mixing it up, of course because I found out the Arabic equivalent to the word Yusuf is Joseph in English, but the definition was never there. Reading books about baby names, I found out that Yusuf means God will increase, that Idris means the teacher, for with justice and Salam is peace. My parents named me seven days after I was born. God will increase the teacher. With justice and peace, when you are looking for purpose, <clears throat> quite oftentimes it's not until later in our lives we try to we say to ourselves, "What am I supposed to be doing? What's my purpose in life?" But imagine finding purpose in the valley, the valley of despair. You know, Dr. King said, "When you find your purpose in life, do it as if God Himself called you to do it at this very moment." Right. And he gave us this beautiful example, not of the greatest purpose, but of what purpose still is. He said, if your purpose in life is to become a street speaker, he says sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep the streets like Beethoven composed music like Leo Tom Price sang before the opera. Imagine that kind of individual turning up their life in dark spaces. Imagine that person raising their vibration and collectively, we can all raise our brothers. Collectively, we can all turn up our life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when I looked at, you know, being associated, right, in prison, it wasn't that I was just de- uh, defining myself as Muslim. But I was born Muslim. But now I was studying. Anytime you have a people tell you what something is, oftentimes you say, Ooh, I don't want to be that. You hear the word Muslim. And you say, those are terrorists. I remember telling my, my daughters once, I said, listen, if I, you know, 2019 was very busy. for me. Right. If I'm running towards a plane and I got to connect to other planes and all of this stuff, imagine this scenario. I'm running to a, a plane and I get to the plane. They're about to close the door and I get here just in the nick of the time. Right. And they say, wow, sir, we were just about to close the door. you made it. And I said, wow, God is the greatest. hmm I get on the plane, I see somebody in first class, they hadn't yet opened their water. I grab their water and say, Is it okay? They say yes, I say thank you. I open their water, drink the water, and say, Wow, God is the greatest. Mm-hmm. Same scenario. Same scenario. Now, mind you, there are Christians in Arabia. Mm-hmm. Same scenario. <clears throat> they speak Arabic. They say Allah for God, Christians. Mm-hmm. Same scenario. I'm running to the plane. I get there. He said, wow, sir, you just made it. We were just about to close the door. And I say, Allahu Akbar. I just missed my point. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But you know, you know what happens, right? <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> and I'm saying that the definitions, yes. right? As soon as people understand, oh, they're just saying God. Right. Mm-hmm. What, does, what does Allahu Akbar mean? It means God is the greatest. Mm -hmm. Or God is greater than anything. So when you hear the call to prayer, which says, Allahu Mm Akbar, say to yourself, I'm supposed to stop everything and turn to God and be thankful. Wow. That's absolutely true. But I have to forgive. And guess what, when you're thankful, Mm -hmm. God gives you more. It's a beautiful
0: process. We know the thing about it is that, because uh, I want to wrap up, but I want to say a few things, and I want you to respond to it. You know, he was incarcerated. Uh, then uh, Donald Trump took out ads, $85,000 in ads, calling you guys everything, every every bad name he could say that he could put in the newspaper. He then become our president. So we know the values he had for men of color. In 1997, you walked out of prison. Um, Spent time in prison for a crime you didn't do. 2002, you was exonerated. Then you received a settlement. And then um, Ava DuVernay. I think what Ava DuVernay did with you guys was like, from a visual and a global perspective, really freed you guys. I said freed you guys uh, from an, in a media standpoint, in a, uh, in a standpoint. You know, the court can say you're free, but what she did was set y'all free and that's important to know and now with that freedom that you now have the intellect that you've gained being educated in prison being educated about life being exonerated getting some money for for being in jail for a crime you didn't commit which we know is never enough because those years were valued years what is the purpose what is your goal because you talked about purpose as we close out this interview what is your purpose master yourself Salam.
1: I think my greatest purpose is to call people to God. My greatest purpose is to utilize my story and tell people, like I've always said in more recent times, that the Central Park Jogger case is not what you think it is. It's actually a love story between God and his people. Central Park Jogger case, the case is a case where God has used it and placed the whole system on trial in order to produce a miracle in modern times. It's a story of how a people can be buried alive and forgotten. The system forgot we were seeds. And it's a story of a people who have been given a social death. And instead of being buried alive and forgotten, they emerge like the phoenix from the ashes. Because as they built the fire to consume us, they forgot that God is the owner of the human. Mm-hmm. And so imagine if we believe again and we're thankful and we say to ourselves, Help me, right? When you say to God, help me, guess what happens? God helps you. Absolutely. And it's so beautiful. Like I said, it's, it's one of those things that it's not until you are tested that you can really say, I got to testify. Because you can't testify unless you've been tested. You know, I was listening to my my inspiration uh ET, and he said something to the effect, he said, you know, everybody wants to be a diamond, but nobody wants the pressure. Mm-hmm. Nobody has the pressure, and then the more pressure, and then the more pressure that's added to create a diamond out of that piece of coal. Mm-hmm. And then after the pressure, nobody wants to be cut. Mm-hmm. Because cutting the diamond, cutting the coal in, into the shape of the diamond is what proves that it's a diamond. Mm-hmm. And it looks so beautiful. It's one of those things that you say to yourself, wow, this is one of the most rarest things on the planet. And I think that what we need to understand is that all of us are dying. We're just in the rough. Love but we're it. We're still dying. Love it. And when we see ourselves as that, we get the opportunity to give ourselves back mission to be great. Well, you are
0: great, my friend. Again, better not bitter. Living on purpose in the pursuit of racial justice master it doesn't say master right there on the book but it should say that it should say humble it should say a. it should say a, a representation a representative of blackness who over it should say overcoming the odds it should say it should say so many blessings a blessed man it should say that too because that's what you are thank you for coming on money making conversations my pleasure thank you for having